0: Are you pregnant or a new parent looking to ensure a better postpartum experience? Or are you a birth worker looking to improve your postpartum care skills? Check out Thriving After Birth, an online self paced course by me, midwife and educator Tanya Tringali. It's 10 and a half hours of video content featuring experts in lactation, mental health, pelvic floor health, pediatric sleep issues. You also get worksheets and a workbook as well as options to have a one-on-one session with me. Sign up at motherwitmaternity.com/thriving and let's improve postpartum care together. She has been an ardent advocate for women, families, and the profession of midwifery for more than four decades. She became a midwife in 1987. A native of Washington State, she lived in California for 32 years, where she received her midwifery education and provided full-scope care for widely diverse populations in varied settings, culminating as assistant clinical professor with the UCSF faculty OBGYN group. Since returning to rural Washington 15 years ago, her clinical practice has focused on outpatient reproductive health, and she has served as distance faculty for the Midwifery Institute of Philadelphia University, which is now Thomas Jefferson University. This is how I know Sherry. She was first my professor for a health policy course, and then we worked together in the years that I was faculty at PhillyU. Her scholarly publications cover diverse topics, health policy education, midwives and politics, midwives as palliative care clinicians, and body art. She is an active member of the American College of Nurse Midwives and has won numerous professional awards. Sherry is the third of four birth professionals to share her birth story with me, which of course means it is also the birth story of a mother and a midwife. Oh, and a gentle reminder that nothing we discuss on this show should ever be considered medical advice. Please speak to your local provider about anything that comes up in this show that resonates with you and your needs and your healthcare. So before we got started, Sherry shared this idea, and I'm wondering what you guys think. If anyone wants to share this type of birth story with me, Hit me up, shoot me an email, send me a DM on Instagram, whatever's easy for you.
1: One of the things at some point that you might want to talk to people about and ask them about if you're not already Mm -hmm. is what they know about their own births, Right? what stories they've been told by their mother or other older women in their families about the circumstances of their own birth. I
0: love that idea, Sherry. And I will probably go ahead and do that. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, because
1: I I will have to say my mother's account of my birth is something that I knew and remembered from early on, uh, long before I ever had a child, so.
0: That is really interesting. I love that idea. Um, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself for our listeners, um, you know, whatever personal details about your life you're willing to share. Okay.
1: Well, I am, uh, my name is Sherry Van Hoover, and I am a certified nurse midwife, no longer in clinical practice. I am 68 years old. I live in rural Washington state on the Olympic Peninsula. And I was actually um, raised here on the Olympic Peninsula, lived here, went to went to school, graduated high school, and then went to San Francisco. And it was in San Francisco that I had my daughter, received my professional education, practiced full scope midwifery. And I didn't move back up here. I lived there for 32 years. And then I moved back up here to Washington State about... 20 years ago now. Um, so that's, that's my story. Uh, I have practiced full scope midwifery. I've delivered probably in the neighborhood of 2,600 babies. Um, I have been a midwifery educator and always a midwifery activist. And currently what I'm doing is we have a small farm. I have gardens, orchards, animals. I'm on the board of trustees for my local library, which is only a couple blocks away. And, um, and I, I also am a social dancer, um, and which has been put on hold by the pandemic. But now that things are calming down a little bit, I'm hoping to get back to that because I teach social dance as well.
0: Okay, so um, how many children do you have?
1: I have one, one daughter.
0: I only have one daughter also. Um, What year was your daughter born?
1: My daughter was born in 1977.
0: Go ahead and tell us a little bit about your story. You can take it back to the farthest point that feels relevant. Um, I, I know I've already framed for you. And at this point, I've probably already framed for our listeners that what's most interesting to me about this is kind of highlighting for our younger parents who are listening How powerful our births are, and that we never forget them. And they are always such an enormous part of who we are and how we came to be our adult selves. And I'm also really interested to hear birth professionals tell their birth stories, because I assume that we tell them a little bit differently than other people. So, with that said, off you go. Well,
1: so I will say I was not yet a midwife when I had my daughter. Um, So, after move, I moved to San Francisco when I was <clears throat> about 19 years old, and over the course of the next couple of years, as I was working in a uh, psychiatric halfway house as a cook and a relief counselor and thinking about what I wanted to do with my life, I discovered midwifery, and I knew that that was going to be what I Needed to be what I wanted to be, but I didn't know there was such a thing as a nurse midwife at that point. The only midwifery that I knew about was direct entry midwifery home births, and so I started preparing myself to be a midwife. I realized that it that I was called, that um, it had everything that I cared about, that I loved, it was about birth and bodies and sexuality and feminism and history and psychology and sociology and uh, everything that felt real and important to me, Uh, natural foods, natural medicines, all of the stuff that my young hippie self was very into. So um, in order to prepare myself to be a midwife, I started taking classes at the Holistic Childbirth Institute in San Francisco, which uh, was largely uh, inspired by and uh, mainly run by Suzanne Arms, who wrote the book Immaculate Deception. So Suzanne was one of my early mentors. And Suzanne suggested to me that what I needed to do was find a way to get to births. And that the best way to do that would be to become a childbirth educator. And so I became a Bradley instructor, a Bradley method instructor. And I did that during my very early pregnancy. Um, uh, So I became pregnant. I had already decided I wanted to be a midwife, I had been taking some classes to prepare myself uh, for that role. I became a childbirth educator during my pregnancy and uh, didn't actually teach classes until after my daughter was born. And I um, I looked around for uh, the kind of midwifery care I wanted. And my partner at that time, my daughter's father, really thought that we should probably consider a hospital birth. He wasn't comfortable with home birth. And, you know, I could kind of see his point and we had available in San Francisco, the alternative birth center at San Francisco General Hospital and that they had a midwifery education program there. So I was able to see nurse midwives for my care uh, and student nurse midwives. And uh, I I really felt like I was getting what I needed there. So that was Uh, Where I got my care, it was only a couple miles from my house. It was very convenient. So, and that was how when I first discovered there was such a thing as nurse midwives. So in terms of my labor and birth, I approached all of this with a great deal of confidence that my body was built to do this. I knew how to do it. It was going to be fine. I mean, obviously there's always some trepidation about the unknown and, you know, pain and you know, the, what it's going to be. But basically I, I was eagerly anticipating the birth and, um, and the process of becoming a mother. So I had just turned, just turned 24 um, just before my daughter was born. So I. Went into. Uh, I was about about a week and a half late uh, after my due date, and I had had a great, healthy pregnancy. I really felt good, but towards the end, yeah, I was you know getting pretty sick of it, ready to be done. And on Halloween Day, um, I started to feel some twinges that I thought might be labor and then I got more excited I thought yeah yeah this is it this is labor and so um it went on um I spent the evening handing out candy to kids at the door between contractions and finally uh, everything kind of calmed down there weren't any more trick-or-treaters and uh I went to bed uh and we tried to get a little bit of sleep and about oh 12 31 in the morning I thought oh this is really getting strong it's time I need to go in so I woke up my partner and we went and got in the car and and went to the hospital and of course there was nothing but parking you know it was really easy went in through the emergency room went up to the birth center and on the way in everything pretty much stopped you know it just you know it's like hmm but I still was hopeful I thought surely you know this is it and we got up there and they checked me and I was like a centimeter and they said yeah you know you can you can stay here and walk around for a while and and we could check you again or you can go home I said I don't know. I'm going home so I went home went back to bed and things picked up again and and uh, so you know, morning came, and I got up, and and it all just seemed the same. Nothing seemed to have changed at all. And I, you know, ate and drank and walked around the house, and you know, waited for things to get serious. I thought this nothing is nothing is changing. Nothing is changing. This is all just the same. It's the same as it was last night. Around about three o'clock in the afternoon. I told Gary, I said, there is something wrong here. I said, this is not right. There, um, it's just the same as it's been, it's taking too long. I, we need to go in, this is not right. So we went and we got in the car and it was a much less comfortable ride to the hospital. And of course we got there and it was the middle of the day and the place was packed and there was no parking. So he dropped me off at the front door And I got in through the front door and I had a contraction, had to lean on the wall and breathe through it. And then I got to the elevator and pushed the button, had a contraction, had to breathe through it. You know, had another one or two in the elevator going up and got up to the right floor and got out of the elevator and I'm walking down towards a labor and delivery area. And, and, uh, and I had to stop and lean on the wall twice going down the hall and people were just like walking past me and I thought you know I could have this baby right here in the hall and nobody would even stop and look at me i mean it's just like what's the deal so anyway i got to the room and they said oh yeah you came in last night right and we're really early i said yes that's right and they said and they checked me in again, and they said, "Well, uh, congratulations, you're eight now." And I said, "Oh, great, okay." And then, you know, Gary had finally found a parking place, and he came huffing and puffing in, and we walked down the hall to the alternative birth center room, and um, we were in that room for, oh, I'd say, half hour forty minutes, and at that point, it really was intense um the contractions were frequent and seemed like it was just like one on top of each other and I remember at one point my chin crumpling and I thought oh this is getting to be too much and my chin crumpled and I I thought I was going to start crying and the midwife just said to me you are doing such a great job and that was all it took I was fine again and then pretty soon I felt like I had to push and uh, they checked me, and they said, yeah, okay, you're complete, go ahead. And I pushed three times and they said, um, oh, wow, there's her head. And I said, you want me to slow down now? And they said, no, no, just go ahead. So I pushed one more time and she was born. And so I pushed a total of four times. Um, and for me, Pushing felt like all of the power of the universe was rushing through my body, from coming like entering to the crown of my head and traveling through me like a railroad, like train car, and then emerging through my vagina, just like I was on this wave of energy and it was more intense and more incredible than anything I've ever felt before. And I experienced it as being orgasmic and ecstatic, right? It was, it was intensely sexual and intensely um, transcendent beyond anything else. And um, so then my daughter was born. We hadn't known whether it was a boy or a girl. We were so thrilled that it was a girl. And uh, she was perfect and healthy and wonderful and Apgar's of eight and nine, I think it was. She weighed um, eight pounds exactly, and so we stayed in that room um, for four hours because that was the that was the protocol. Um, you had to stay at least four hours before you could go home. So she was born. No, it was six hours. It was six hours before you could go home, and so she was born at four thirty in the after at four thirty in the afternoon, and um, and so we went home at ten thirty that night, and so we went home and I stuck her in the cradle next to the bed and I collapsed in the bed and he was exhausted and he collapsed in the bed and we all went to sleep. And somewhere probably around, I don't know, 2.33 in the morning, he like nudged me awake and said, aren't you like supposed to like feed her or something? And, and I said, oh, yeah, yeah, right. And, and so I sat up and I picked her up and she was breathing and, and, uh, and seemed fine. I kind of thrust her towards my breast a time or two and you know and, and I put her back down. I went back to sleep and um, in the morning when we woke up we were all still alive now uh, was that optimal um, postpartum care Uh, was was i being observed to make sure i wasn't bleeding to death and was she being observed to make sure she was still breathing no um (laughs) to both of those but we made it through the night and we were fine and we initiated breastfeeding well in the morning and just got on with uh, our relationship and that's that's the story
0: of the birth is there another story
1: we hope you're enjoying the mother Wit podcast if you are please rate us and leave a review in itunes spotify or wherever you're listening to your podcast
0: thanks so much now back to the show
1: well you know parenting of course is always another whole story
0: That's what I'm saying. I got the impression the way you you framed that, that there's a story that might be more important or more powerful for you than even the birth itself.
1: No, I would say that the birth is the absolute most powerful of anything, right? That birth made me know, well, it, it, it made me know that I was strong enough to do whatever I needed to do in life ever. Right? That, uh, that I was emotionally and physically powerful enough to bring life into this world, get the job done, and take care of myself in the face of whatever had to be faced. Right? And that a power existed outside myself that would pour through me right just like it felt like during that pushing right that this power existed that i could tap into that was more than just what i could do myself and i was a part of that so so that was that now of course you know you said that you're really interested in people's postpartum experiences um i i think mine was normal but postpartum is hard right um you know because there I was you know my bottom hurt and and uh and my nipples got sore and I was tired and uh you know as may have become apparent in some of you know my telling of the story thus far although my partner was supportive in his way and doing his best he was not the most nurturing kind of guy in the world right and so I was very much on my own or it felt like I was very much on my own and I remember waking up oh on about the third or fourth day um and just feeling overwhelmed and thinking oh man I need someone to take care of me I really need to be mothered. And so uh, I called my mother, who was here in Washington State, and uh, said, Mom, I, I know we said that you would wait until two weeks after the birth to come, because we wanted to get established here. Um, but I really feel like I need some help. And she was like, oh, I'll be on the next plane. OK, I'm coming. So then, you know, he woke up and I told him what I had done. He was like, oh, no, no, God, no, you know, please, uh, anything but that. I'll do everything. I promise. I promise. I'll do it all. And so I called her back and I said, no, don't come. And so we waited and she came the two weeks later. Um, And he did a lot. He did. um, uh, But that was, you know, that was... um, it was It was difficult because it would have been nice, I think, uh, for my relationship with my own mother. and uh, it would have taken some of the pressure off of him. but that was not that was not how things were in our family.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a thread that is carried on through to today is this lack of family. And so many of the families that work with me, that is one of the things that drives them to work with me is this recognition that, you know, I think we're doing a very good job of getting the word out these days that postpartum is hard, and you need a team. It uh, takes a village. All of those, you know, basic messages. Um, and I'm, I'm guessing you look back and do you kind of wish that you had had your mother come anyway?
1: So, I I don't know actually because you have to remember who the real mother is that you're dealing with and. Um, And there's been enough at that time and going forward, there was enough tension in that relationship between me and my mother that I'm not sure I would have gotten what I was hoping for, even if she had been there. Right. Uh, It's not like she's the um, super nurturing cookie baking. um, They're there, you know, I, I'm not sure that it would have been that much more helpful, but what I did need was a mother, a an ideal mother, an idealized mother.
0: Was there anyone else around a woman in particular that maybe you could have had with you, that you didn't bring in? Like I guess I'm getting at how hard it is for a man and a woman, or just simply two individuals to do this, you know, how, is do you look back and wish you had built a little more of a village around you for this time? Or did you not have access to other people easily? Well,
1: yeah, you know, um, the other people who were in my life, the other women, um, they were, none of them were mothers. Right? And I was kind of the pioneer here. Um, and and so I didn't really have that kind of access uh, or didn't or hadn't built it. And I think it is important to build. And it's certainly something that I have always, you know, when I gave my postpartum instructions uh, to, to my clients, what I would always say to them. And I would write it on a prescription blank for them. All right. I would write it down on a prescription blank and I would say it in front of the the client and the partner whoever that partner was and I would say for one week you are not to get dressed you are to lie around in your bathrobe snuggling with the baby doing nothing except eating drinking breastfeeding relaxing it is a baby moon it's like a little honeymoon with the baby where you just lay around scantily clad, loving on somebody else. And you are to do no cooking, no cleaning, no laundry, no dishes for one week. And since those things are going to have to be done, you need to figure out now who is going to do all of those things, right? So that's what I would write down for other people. Clearly as yes, and a, and a lesson that I learned from my own experience, because I didn't have that. And yes, I wish I had.
0: Yeah, okay, that's what I was getting at. That was exactly the kind of, the version I wanted to hear. Like some people might've said, yeah, I absolutely wish I had brought my mother in, but I knew there was something, and I just, I wanted to know what it was. Okay, I have a question. Um, When you look back on the care you received from your midwife, the Sherry that wasn't yet a midwife, May have seen certain things one way. Then there's the Sherry as she's becoming a midwife, or as a young novice midwife, and then there's Sherry now, and with all these things that have changed and the science that's evolved, are there aspects of the care that you received that you look at differently as time has unfolded?
1: So, um, not really. I mean, I feel I feel grateful that I received care. At the time I did, when um, dopplers were being used in labor and uh, and prenatally, but when and and I made choices then as um, as a technology skeptic, right that were not in line with what I would recommend or do later. And also because the technology was relatively young, but um, Doppler's were available. I asked that they not be used during my pregnancy at all. Um, I only wanted my daughter's heartbeat, my my fetus's heartbeat, because I didn't know it was a daughter, uh, listened to with a, with a fetus scope. Um, and uh, ultrasounds were available but they were not being routinely used. And I didn't have any during my pregnancy. And I was fine with that. Um, electronic fetal monitors were being adopted for widespread use in, in spite of the fact there was no evidence and they were even less well understood then than now. And uh, I certainly didn't want them. And I continue to be a fan of intermittent auscultation now. So, um, so I had skepticism about those things. Um, now, one thing that I might've done differently, um, I, I am RH negative, And, uh, at that time, prenatal Rogam was just starting to be recommended at, at 28 weeks of pregnancy. And I declined it. Um, I said that we could wait until after the baby was born, find out what the blood type was. And there was a lot of concern about that. And I had a rationale. And actually to this day, I think my rationale holds water. Um, But but I think I might have um, counseled myself differently had I been my client instead of me. So that I probably would have done differently. Um, It turned out fine. My daughter has Rh negative blood, just like I do. And her daughter has Rh negative blood, just like we do. And just like my mother does, it seems to be a thing uh, among women in our family. Um, uh, And I knew that there was a strong prob that there was, I knew that there was a um, 50% chance that the baby would be Rh negative because my partner's mother was Rh negative. So I knew that he was uh, heterozygous um, and that he had a gene for both Rh positive and Rh negative. So given my Rh negative status, um, I knew that there was a 50% chance and I thought that that was okay. Um, You know, other things, let's see. no, I, I I, felt like I received very good care. It was, you know, it wasn't the kind of super personal, intimate, long visits, um, really getting to know each other kind of midwifery care that I probably would have gotten if I had gone with someone who was doing home births. Um, or if I had gone to more of a private practice setting instead of the more institutional setting at San Francisco General. However, um, the alternative birth center, which was a room in the hospital, but you, went, you had your baby in that room and you didn't have to go anywhere else and it, you wore your own clothes and it was very casual with just a bed in there and you, got, you were encouraged to go home as early as six hours after the birth, and you couldn't stay more than 24 hours. Um, I felt like it met my needs. I was pretty independent then as now.
0: Well, and at that point, you were already, you'd already done all your education as a childbirth educator. So you had some really, some good knowledge under your belt. Um, tell me a little bit about when you ended up becoming a midwife since your birth preceded uh, your yeah. becoming a midwife.
1: So... Um, I continued as so after um, my daughter was born um, within about Oh, three, four months I started actually teaching the childbirth classes and, um, and within Oh, eight months, or a year I was attending births as a a doula, Um, I would call it a labor coach then but as a doula and a photographer. And I continued to, and I was looking for an apprenticeship situation still um, and still committed to the idea of becoming a direct entry midwife. And then um, there was a well-known case uh, in the Santa Cruz mountains where Kate Boland and her partner who were direct entry midwives were set up by a pregnant undercover officer, pregnant uh, police officer who asked them to come to her birth uh, and be, they didn't know she was a police officer, uh, but they just knew her as a pregnant woman who wanted care and they gave prenatal care. And then about, I think it was as much as six or eight weeks before her due date, She called them and said, I'm in labor, you need to come. And they said, no, no, it's too early. Um, You need to go to the hospital. And she told them, no, I'm not going to the hospital. Um, You have to come or I'll just do it by myself here. And so they went to the house to convince her to go to the hospital. And when they walked in the door, they were arrested um, everything was confiscated, their, their fetoscopes, their their everything, their di- the diapers, and they were charged with practicing medicine without a license. That case went through the courts in California ultimately it went to the Supreme Court and it was a very interesting ruling at that time that um, that they ended up, being cleared or, you know, the the conviction for practicing medicine without a license was not upheld by the court because they said that midwifery was not medicine. However, they also said in that decision, that Supreme Court decision, that women did not have the right to choose where they would give birth or who they would give birth with. So I watched all this happen and I got involved with a, with the early efforts under um, when Jerry Brown was the governor the first time in California to try to get direct entry midwifery legalized in California there was a bill and I worked on that bill and for it and and it failed and I said okay that's it Um, I am not going to prison I'm not gonna lose my house Uh, I want to be as good as I can be and as well prepared as I can be to do this important work. And so I have to become a nurse. And so then when my daughter was three years old, I started taking prerequisites for nursing school. And then um, I got into an associate's degree program for nursing and did this two year nursing program. And uh, then I, after I got out of nursing school, I went to work at Mount Zion Hospital, which is where I ha- they had an alternative birth center and a private practice of nurse midwives. And, uh, it was one of the places where I'd been teaching childbirth classes. I went to work there in their family uh, birthing, maternal child birthing unit. Um, Although I never worked in their alternative birth center as a as a nurse, because I only worked there for about a year and a half, and then I was admitted to midwifery school. Um, So I went to nursing so that I could be a midwife. It was a hoop that I had to jump through so that I could practice legally and um, and not endanger my family and my own future.
0: This was very special for me, this part of the story that you just told, because Um, You know, I said at the beginning that Sherry was one of my professors in midwifery school, and the course that she taught when I was in school was health policy. Um, And I'm sure from her uh, early introduction, you guys have heard how much work she does around health policy. But I realized that I just got the birth story of how you became so amazing at health policy all at the same time, which was kind of an unexpected uh, gift in in you telling this story. That's very cool.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's that's, that is how my advocacy got applied to midwifery. You know, my, my interest in politics and policy goes back um, even in high school. I helped organize a campaign on behalf of a recycling bill, for instance, you know, Save the, pla- uh, save the Planet by Recycling Cans and Bottles. You know, so, so it's always been an interest of mine, something I felt was important to try to, try to change policy so that we can do things
0: the right way, you know? Did you have a bachelor's degree before you had your daughter?
1: No. Um, again, politics kind of entered into that. Uh, when I graduated from high school, I went to the Evergreen State College in Olympia here in Washington state. It was the very first year it existed. And, um, it is a, um, it's a state college, but at that time, it was brand new. It was not yet accredited. Um, they, they didn't have any dorms. They put us up in motels around town. Um, there, there are no sidewalks. You've never seen mud that deep in your life. I mean, it was incredible, this brand new campus in Washington state in a rainy part of the state. Um, you know, walking on boards across campus. And um, it was still at the height of the Vietnam War and uh, political considerations got involved. And anyway, after one year I left. Um, And uh, so then I did a little bit of traveling up and down the coast and ended in San Francisco. So I had no degree, I had had one year of college at this alternative college which was a great experience i loved it there and it's a great university a great college today um with uh really innovative programs um and they did get accredited uh it would have been accredited by the time i left uh, but when i was there it was not and uh, so no all of my education i started With the prerequisites, I went to City College of San Francisco, Community College, got my prerequisites. That took about a year and a half. And then City College of San Francisco for the associate's degree program. And so then there I was a practicing. And then I went to the San Francisco general program and did the certificate in midwifery, which was a 13-month program. So I had an associate's in nursing and a certificate in midwifery. And for me, that was heaven. It was all I thought I needed or wanted because I was practicing as a midwife and that was all I'd wanted to do. But from the beginning of my journey till the time I was practicing as a midwife, that was 10 years um, that I worked at that. So then um, after a few years of practicing as a midwife, I realized that ultimately I would like to be able to teach and that without a master's, in midwifery, a a master's degree, um, I would not be able to teach and that many states, if I ever wanted to move to another state, uh, many states required a master's degree. So I went back to school um, evenings and picked up a bachelor's degree in nursing, which I always thought was a great irony because I never wanted to be a nurse Um, And so I got my bachelor's in nursing because that was the easiest thing for me to get the requisite number of credits in. And then um, there was a brand new distance education program through the State University of New York at Stony Brook, where you uh, could do your education, you could do your classes online and get a master's in midwifery, not in nursing. And that was really important to me politically and personally, that my degree was in the discipline that I loved and uh, I was passionate about. So I have a master's in midwifery from SUNY New York.
0: Yeah, this is obviously a place where we're very aligned, which is probably not a surprise. Um, You know, I have the slightly more, you know, younger person's version of your story in that I lived in New York State at the time that I became a midwife and could have become a CM. But because I knew deep down that I might not stay in New York forever, I recognized the shortcomings of making that choice. And so kind of forced myself to go to nursing school, never wanted to be a nurse either. Um, And then of course, because midwifery was what was so important to me, I was committed to going to Philadelphia University for that reason. Um, So that's kind of, you know, 20 years later, I'm guessing, uh, right. where that. Well, and
1: that's, and that's why I am so um, proud of the work that I did at Philadelphia University, which then became Jefferson, because we educate certified midwives, they CMs. And in my heart of heart, I continue to believe that nursing should not be a prerequisite, a prerequisite to midwifery, that, that midwifery is its own discipline and that we are driving away and wasting the time and the talents of so many people who could be getting out there into into the profession and caring for the individuals who need us. Um, But that's, that's another political fight right there that I hope people will take on.
0: Well, I couldn't agree with you more, and you know, it's funny, I was going to ask you one final question before we wrap up, and I was, and I I think now I know what your answer is, but it could be something completely different, because we can stand on many soapboxes together, Um, but uh, I was going to ask you if you would end on the note of sharing what you believe the biggest issue facing our profession to be, as it might affect midwives, and also as it might affect consumers. And so if that's the same answer, that's fair. Or if you have two separate answers, I'll take it that way as well. Take your time and think. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I am thinking. Um, So I would say that the biggest issue is the need to unify the midwifery profession. And uh, and recognize all paths to midwifery as being legitimate. I do believe that there should be standards. Right? I, it is important work and we must preserve the safety of that sacred trust that we've been given in caring for the most vulnerable people in that there are at, the mo- at their most formative and vulnerable uh, time. So I, I do believe in high standards. However, I think that we need to get more midwives educated. I also think we need to face the shameful history of racism in our profession, which is just a reflection of the shameful history of racism in our entire society and the ways that people have been excluded, from professional opportunities that should have been there for them all along. And that we need to look at the ways um, healthcare is delivered in this country. I mean, I'm a founding uh, member of Midwives for Universal Healthcare. I think that we need to completely revamp the way healthcare is paid for in this country so that everybody has access to safe satisfying care and that midwifery care has to be an integral key component of that care.
0: Thank you so much for telling your story and for sharing these final thoughts. You said so many things that are so deeply important to me and you say them so much better than I can. So I appreciate that. Um, Wow this has been a real treat. I feel like uh, it's really an honor when you get to listen to somebody talk one-on-one and really connect their personal story with all the things that you think you know about them. So um, this has been really wonderful. Thank you so much, Sherry.
1: Oh, well, thank you. It meant a lot to me too, Tanya. I really appreciate the opportunity.
0: It's me, Tanya, your host here at the Motherwit Podcast. You know I sometimes invite my clients on the show to talk about their birth stories and postpartum experiences, but I want to tell you a little bit more about what those clients and I actually do together. I started Motherwit to help people in the perinatal period achieve their health and wellness goals. That means whether you're hoping to conceive and struggling with high blood pressure or high blood sugar, or you're having trouble managing anxiety or depression in the postpartum period... Or maybe you just need support and advocacy between prenatal or postpartum visits. I can help. Get a discount on your first consultation with me at motherwitmaternity.com using the code FIRSTCONSULT10OFF. That's ten percent off. That's one zero percent symbol, all one word. I'm looking forward to working with you and maybe having you on the show too.